Okay, looks like we're operating. January 31st, 2010, lecture discussion number 11. Do I have the computer and the CD recording? Thank you, sir. <coughs> lecture discussion number 11 on Zechariah 11, Revelation 13, 17, John 12, Matthew 27, and Matthew 12. Today, primarily, we're, we're going to take on that incredible account that is John chapter 12. Uh, the anointing oil, the resurrected Lazarus sitting at the table. So something, you know, right immediately something incredible is going on. Lazarus is sitting at this table. It's the first recorded words of Judas, what's called Judas's protest. It's the indignation of the apostles, or if you will, it is the apostles rising up behind Judas. Matthew 26. It's the money box, the poor, that are with you always. Does that ever seem to you when you read that, where he says, you will have the poor with you always? Does that, how does that strike you? Do you ever think, well, that's, why is he saying that? You will have the poor with you always. Me, you only have for a short time. It's true, except he's omnipresent and he's coming back and then there's eternity. So how short's that? Why does he say that? Did you ever read that and think there's something just a little bit, maybe cold about that? You're going to have the poor all the time. You better focus on me, baby. Is that how you read it? Because if you did, what's wrong with you? You're in trouble. Because it can't possibly mean that. So what does it really mean? And why is there so much mistaken scholarship about the poor will be with you always? Very important part of the scripture in the, in the book of John, in John 12 especially. And then the chief priests, what are they going to do? They're going to plot to kill Lazarus, who just got resurrected. So how long are we going to keep doing that? I'm going to kill him. He's going to resurrect him. We're going to kill him again. We'll resurrect him again. How long can that go on? Why are they plotting to re-kill Lazarus? What's their plan? So that's John 12. I keep hearing radio or speaking or something. Is it just me or is it just everybody? No one's hearing radio? We are hearing. We're hearing voices. Okay, please, if you're talking... Hunt them down in the hallway, Terry. Beat them. John 12 is an essential place for those who study the 8th and ninth mysteries. And, and as you know, the 8th and ninth, ninth mysteries, that's the mystery of the great harlot, that's the mystery of the man of sin, Babylon the great, the Antichrist, the harlot that sits on the beast, the mystery of iniquity. Those two mysteries are extraordinary, and all of them are. Those two, of course, are lined up with the mystery of the incarnation, God coming as my as a man, and the mystery of God's bride, or the bride of Christ, or the church. So I have these complementary mysteries. That's why they're so important to study the eighth and ninth uh, alongside of the uh, the incarnation. So what one is a counterfeit. I hope you see that Christ has His church and Himself, and Satan has His Antichrist and His great harlot or his ecclesiastical Babylon. So Satan is counterfeiting the, the other mysteries of Christ. So pay attention to that. It's very important. And, and of course, as I said, uh, helpful to understand almost all of the New Testament. Now, I'm well aware that all of this that I've thrown up here the last few weeks can be really difficult to follow, really tough. 
and it's frustrating and it's exhausting and and a lot of people just don't deal with it. They just quit. They get about halfway into it. They say, I'll never understand it. I'm not going to try to understand it. It's like the 666. Remember, I told you how long ago that by the time I was done with you, you would understand the 666. And you will. But I have to give you all of this first. Wisdom is understanding the 666. I rarely come across somebody that understands it. I got on the Internet yesterday just for fun, just to see how old, uh, how, how much time had passed from where the, where the country had an understanding of what was going on in the eighth of ninth mystery and then today. The last person that I found that had any concept, um, um, that had an in-depth concept, uh, died about 1850. Then it died out completely. And now, any discussion on the 666 and the wisdom that comes from understanding that the Antichrist or the eighth mystery is almost completely gone. But I want you to hang in there and resist the urge to quit. You'll get there. Progress is going to be slow, but it's going to be progress. And you've already made progress and you don't know it. I have slipped it into you. I have I have beaten beaten it into you probably. And let me illustrate that for you really fast. Because you need to take stock every now and then and say, okay, am I getting anything? Has he taught me anything at all? Or has he completely gone over my head and left me behind? I have not gone over your head. I'll show you. Revelation 13. Then he stood on the sand of the sea. That's Satan standing there. And John speaking. John writing. Holy Spirit through John. Then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, do you have any idea what the seven heads and the ten horns are? You do. I'm looking at you. You do. Do you know what percentage of the people that read the book of Revelation or read the New Testament or call themselves Christians have any idea what the seven heads are and the ten horns? It's less than one percent. It's less than a tenth of one percent. It's lost knowledge in the church today. And then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Now where are you? Where do you go in the Bible? Daniel. How many of you knew immediately when I said leopard that we're talking about Daniel? Pretend you can raise your hand here. See, everybody knows now, in this room at least, I hope, maybe a couple of you don't because you've been missing and now you're here and I know why you're here. See me later. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. That's Daniel 2. His feet were like the feet of... I'm sorry, Daniel 7. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, immediately you see Daniel 2, and then you see what about the beast? You see personal information about the man. Remember, the beast is two things. It is, it is the empire, the fourth Gentile empire, and it's also the individual, the person, the Antichrist, the man of sin. So I have a beast that's a Gentile empire, and I have a beast that is the Antichrist himself. And sometimes, it's called Hebrew double reference, they are side by side and they switch back and forth, and we'll get to that in a second. 
Now, Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. What mystery are we in now? We're in the mystery, number nine, of the great harlot, of mystery Babylon. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned in gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, you see that cup? Where are cups in Scripture? Name me a cup somewhere. There's two significant places where this could be a counterfeit. Name me one. Gethsemane. Okay, does it fit with Gethsemane? Where's the other place there's a cup? Passover, that's right. And the third cup of the Passover is what? It's the cup that is used in the betrothal ceremony. So I either have Gethsemane, or I have Passover, or I have the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, Passover, the same thing. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her... John the Apostle marveled with great amazement. And that's a big clue there. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life. From the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So the world will marvel when they find out who this is. Just as John marveled when he found out who it was. And you should marvel when you find out who it is. But not for very long. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as of yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now, that is probably one of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible. And I read it really fast. How come? I want you to get used to understanding it. So I'm just reading it again to you. What do we call that in teaching? Beating you. That's right. I I am pounding it in. I'm getting you so familiar with the terminology that pretty soon you just go, hey, I know, I know this seven heads, ten horns, seven heads, ten horns. Crazy person always says seven heads, ten horns. Now, Daniel 7. I'm leaving out Daniel 2 today, but you know that Daniel 2 is here, right? You know that you can't figure this out without all four of them. And you know that this, the seven heads and the ten horns are about what? The beasts are about what? The image of Nebuchadnezzar, the the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron is about what? What's it about? It's about the age of the Gentiles, which started when? 
586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed the Solomonic Temple, captured the uh, royalty and the, uh, of, of Israel and drugged them away and, of course, uh, put most of Israel in captivity. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his, and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. I love Daniel. Daniel has a dream. He does what? Writes it down, because why? He knows this is something special. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. That, by the way, is exactly the same as the beast coming out of the sea, and then the beast being... See, the beast is spoke of as an empire and also as a human being. That's happening here. There's a Babylonian empire... And also specific to Nebuchadnezzar, one right after the other. So you have to be able to divide it. What part is about the Babylonian Empire? What part is about Nebuchadnezzar? And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. Dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. See, Daniel knew about the ten horns. He didn't see the what? The seven heads. Seven heads is new information. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming out from among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Okay? Now, those are probably, if you asked any Bible teacher, that's the calculus, if you will. That's equilibrants and resultants. That's if a boat leaves Boston against a wind and a tide of so many miles an hour and it has this much weight and a train leaves Kansas City in the opposite direction, what's the name of the passenger? Okay, that's what that is. You all in all those story problems. You know, this is the calculus. This is the derivatives, if you will. This is the quantum mechanics of the Bible. Daniel 2 and 7 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. Okay? So it's the hardest of the hard. What comes next, of course, I believe, is Zechariah 11. So what am I doing to you? I'm giving you the hardest material you can find in the Old and the New Testament. Why? Why don't we just do patty cake, good time, rock and roll? You know, Jesus loves me, give me a Skittle. That's what's going downstairs, going on. Why don't I do that? Because it says specifically, here's wisdom, having wisdom. 
If you have wisdom, what will you do? Uh, Jeffy got up here and talked about the, the one another's, how to treat each other. If you have wisdom, what happens to everything else in your life? Yeah, you, you end up with, yeah. You understand death because you understand your mortal soul. You understand prophecy so you don't freak out watching TV. It's really easy to watch cable TV and get mad, isn't it? But what should you really be doing? Man, I hope we get to where? That one world government, baby. Hope we get there. Hope I get to see that. Because then what? Time be a-wasting. I want you to have wisdom so that you can handle your life. Your life will have less impact on you. I know that sounds kind of funny. But you will have less trials, less tribulation. You'll have healthier kids, healthier marriages, healthier everything if you have wisdom. That's a healthier pet's. Everything will be healthier. Everything will be more peaceful for you. You'll have more joy if you have wisdom. I know people disagree with me on that, but I I just am profoundly affected by the people who have come before me. And I watch the victorious ones. I watch the ones that died in victory. I watch the ones who faced death without fear. And they all had the same characteristics. They were wise. And they could take any bullet you could give them. See, the the apostles asked Christ, how am I going to die? He told them, this is how you're going to die. This is when you're going to die. Showed them. I believe he did this. And this is just speculation. I have no proof of it, but I believe he did. And and you can ask me why. I think I can make a strong case. I think he stood them all in front of him and he pulled their souls out of them. And let them look at their bodies. Put their souls back in, pulled them back out. Prove to them that they were an immortal soul, that they were a two-component being, a physical being and a spirit soul. He brought the spirit and soul out. They had absolutely no fear of death. None of those guys did. You study the history on the apostles. They boiled John alive. He thought that was going to be fun. And he was unaffected by it. And the Romans, every Roman that came anywhere near John was what? Saved. Perhaps the most powerful testimony ever recorded. Unafraid. How could he be afraid? He was twicking outside of time. He wrote the book of Revelation. So no fear. He had no fear. He had tremendous peace. He knew what was going to happen. He, he went to his, They all did. Every single apostle did that. That's one of the keys evidences, by the way, of, of who Christ is. How did those men, those fishermen, tax collectors... These were the uneducated. These were the locomotive electricians of their day. That's why I have a little affinity for them. How did they go to their death like that? If it were a fraud, by the way. If there were no Christ and he faked his death or he swooned or they hid the body. How did they go to their death? How how did they do that? And they were so powerful. Read sometime the Roman historians uh, what happened to John when he was in exile. They didn't want to kill him. Why not? They're afraid of this guy. He could do things. And, and by the, understanding what the apostles could do uh, is a very important subject as well. And Christ made them special, and it's not fair. But I know that the people that went before me that knew uh, the intricacies of the Bible all went with victory. And that's what I'm trying to do for you. They had triumphant lives. Okay, this, you are now among those who know that Daniel 2 plus Daniel 7 plus Revelation 13 plus Revelation 17 equals 1. You here know that.
and that this is about the times of the Gentiles, and that it will have very specific characteristics. Daniel wanted to know when is the time of the Gentiles going to end, and God told him when it would end. He would be able to predict. Now, did he see it in his lifetime? He saw Nebuchadnezzar, and he saw Medo-Persia. He saw the first two. How powerful was Daniel? He didn't need to see but one. He got to see two. How about you? You've seen how many of these empires? You've seen all four of them. Well, you didn't see them personally, but you know about them. We're in one right now. We're in the four. We are in the east-west division of the Iron Beast Empire. That's where we are. There's going to be four Gentile empires with specific characteristics that will dominate Jerusalem, dominate Israel, the Lion Gold Empire, the Bear Silver Empire, the Leopard Brass Empire, and the Beast Iron Empire. Finally, the stone will come, the rock will come, and crush the Gentile dominion over Jerusalem and the world. And who will now rule Jerusalem? The Jews will. Time of the Gentiles will be over. Who's their king? God. Christ the Messiah, sitting on the throne. And what's he do? He rules for a thousand years. And what comes out of his throne? Living water, life comes out. What's it do to the Dead Sea? What's it do to the desert? Look at Ezekiel 40 through 47, 45, somewhere in there. Look at 40 on in Ezekiel and read what happens, what comes out of the throne room of Christ as he sits there and what it does. It's extraordinary. That's the millennium. But the age of the Gentiles will be over because Christ will come, the rock will come, the stone will come, crush the Gentile dominion, restore Israel as a nation of priests with God himself as king, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Now, you're among those who know that the seven heads are what? Come on. Seven, the heaven, seven heads are seven stages... Of what? There's seven stages of the fourth Gentile empire. Okay? You're among those who know that. You know that the seven heads are the seven stages of the beast iron empire. And they are chronological. They are sequential. They came in order. This was the first head, second head, third head, fourth head, fifth head. Tarquin, counselor, plebeian dictator, republican, oligarchy of ten, if you will, and triumvirate. Let me repeat that because it's confusing to the people that get the CDs. Tarquin, first head, counselor, second head, plebeian dictator, third head, republican, or oligarchy of ten, also called decimer. That's the fourth head, the triumvirate, the fifth head. Okay? There were five stages of the Iron Beast Empire that fell before John wrote his book. So when he says five heads have fallen, those are the five that fell before John wrote Revelation. Then it said there'll be the sixth head. And that, when John was alive, it was in the United States, the, the Holy Roman, I'm sorry, the, the Roman Empire, not the Holy Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was in the United States. You know about the United States. I can name you some rulers of it. Caesar. Augustus Caesar, Nero, Claudius, what were they? They were the emperors, and they had a united, they were ruling all of Rome in a united stage. And then the Roman Empire broke into two pieces. You know, you went to seventh grade world history, didn't you? Okay, some of you go to private school, I hope, maybe. 
you know that the Roman Empire broke into two pieces. It broke into from Rome, which fell to who? Who took Rome out? Want to say barbarians? I'll give you that. They, Rome fell in the in the 400s, and Constantinople fell in the 1430s, 1400s. So we went to a two-division stage, and those two divisions fell, but they didn't really fall. They moved up. One went into Russia, where we still had Caesars. We called them czars. The other one went up to, into uh, Charlemagne's empire, the Holy Roman Empire. He called himself the Holy Roman Emperor of the Roman Empire. And then eventually the, Fra uh, the uh, Franks were conquered by the Germans, and they had Kaisers. So we still had Caesar. They actually called Caesars all the way to 1900. Caesar Nicholas, Caesar Wilhelm, East-West Division. My dad was alive. That's how close I am to this. I'm one generation away from my father was alive. He knew Kaiser Wilhelm. He didn't know him, but he knew of him. He knew Tsar Nicholas. You remember when the Bolsheviks killed Nicholas? You weren't there. Do you, does anybody remember Anna Anderson and, and all these women who said that they were the survivors of that slaughter? Does anybody remember when that was a big deal? Of course, that was back before we had what? DNA, baby. Now no one says that anymore. They tested the DNA of all of those women that claimed to be, I can't remember her name, the girl that, uh, of the royal family. What was it? Anastasia, right? Right, thank you. See, you remember that it was a Caesar. Caesar Nicholas. That just happened. Caesar Wilhelm. What happened when Caesar Wilhelm was killed? What happened? Caesar Wilhelm was killed. Okay, Kaiser Wilhelm. What happened when he died? World War I. See? That just essentially... So, so the Roman Empire still existed at the time my dad was born. In the East-West Division stage. And it still exists now. We are in the East-West Division stage. Okay? So that's where we are, right here. The two-division stage. We are in the sixth head of the fourth Gentile Iron Beast Kingdom. What comes next of this, in the sixth head? The one world government stage, or the world devoured by this. The one world government that breaks into ten kingdoms. Now, if we start to see a one-world government that starts to break into ten kingdoms, that means the sixth head is almost gone. What comes after the sixth head? The Antichrist, the seventh head. What comes after the seventh head? The stone head, or stone empire, which will be Christ, okay? So, you know that. It just happened. Excuse me. Wow. It just happened. Yes, effectively, yes. Finally, as I said, the rock will come and crush the Gentile dominion over Israel. And, and you are among those who know that the seven heads are seven phases, that the ten horns are ten contemporary kings. The heads are sequential. Okay, they are one after another, chronological, if you will. The ten horns are right here. Okay, the ten horns are contemporary. 
Those are side by side, not one after another. And you're among those who know that the seven heads are the seven that I'm sorry, that the seven heads that are the seven mountains are phases of the fourth Gentile empire of which five phases have passed at the time of John. And one is and that has passed for us. And we're here. Two more to go. How many have come and gone perfectly, by the way? We're all the way through to here. What do you think are the odds mathematically, just logically? If these have all come to pass, what are the odds that these come? Pretty good. Yeah, 100%. Study logic progressions. Okay? You're among those who know that. So you are among those who know that by adding Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17 that the sixth head of the fourth Gentile empire would have itself these four sequential parts as well. So the heads are sequential, then the sixth head divides into four sequential or chronological parts. Okay, and finally the seventh head, the Antichrist stage, the man of sin, who is the little eleventh horn of Daniel 7. I read that. So the Antichrist, and so few people get this. He is the eleventh horn, so what does that mean for him? Let me drop this down. He is the eleventh horn, so that means I have ten kings, right? He's the eleventh king. What's he do? He kills three. So he is the eleventh, and he's the eighth of the ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. That's how he can be the seventh head and the eleventh horn and the eighth horn. It doesn't say horn. It says he is the seventh head and the eleventh and the eighth. Does it make sense? Does anybody look at me now? I'm going to look at your faces. Give me the... I get it. Or I have no idea, person, what you're saying. And don't be afraid. I'll just drag you up here after the service. Now, you have dispensation, ma'am, because you haven't been here for the last two and a half years. Did they tell you that you walked into a class that's 15 years old? Okay. If you get this, by the way, you can teach next Sunday. I'm kidding. Um, But I'll be very impressed. How many of you are confident that if I gave you a test today and said, explain to me how the Antichrist is the seventh head and the eleventh and the eighth? How many of you could write that and explain it? Go ahead. I won't hold it against you. I won't watch. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Keep it really high. Very smart of you, by the way. But that... I believe almost all of you can, and that's something for you to be very excited about. And if you can't, don't worry. What will we do? Keep beating you. That's right. That's what we do here. That's wisdom. Knowing that the seven heads are phases over time that are sequential, chronological. Knowing how it is that the Antichrist is the seventh head and the eleventh king, and then he becomes the eighth king, or the eleventh and the eighth, understanding that he is part of this contemporary ten kings. Understanding that is tremendous wisdom. Do not underestimate how much wisdom that takes. Knowing that the term beast applies to the fourth Gentile empire that dominates Jerusalem. And it's also 
the Antichrist himself, knowing that there's this counterfeit, ecclesiastical Babylon, the harlot, the false bride, the black bride, if you will, of the Antichrist. By black, I mean filth, versus the white virgin bride where, that has been cleansed. Knowing that there's this counterfeit going on, and, and that the, uh, the black bride of the Antichrist, the filthy bride, the harlot of the Antichrist, sits upon the scarlet beast, and she's called Mystery Babylon. Knowing that, that's extraordinary. By the way, what's the significance of why is the beast scarlet? Do you know? Do you know? Sits on the scarlet beast. Why is he scarlet? Why is she so adorned? That's a clue to what the cup's about that she's carrying, by the way. Why is she adorned? It's because I asked that. What's the cup filled with? You know, is it, is it filled with filth and abomination? Why is her name on her forehead? What's this forehead thing going on all the time? How many of you have gone to a Catholic service on Ash Wednesday? Where do they put the ash? On the forehead. Where else? What, which hand? The right hand. Why do I have this forehead right hand thing going on? What's that about? Brides, as you know, most of you know, are adorned with jewels and gold. Study the story of Rebecca. She's adorned with jewels. And as she is found, Abraham the father sends his trusted servant Eliezer over to get Rebecca. He finds Rebecca. He adorns her with gold. And he teaches her about the bridegroom that she has not seen until she marries him, and that's Isaac. And there's your picture, by the way, of God the Father sending the Holy Spirit to gather the church, the bride, adorn the bride, and bring her to the bridegroom Christ. See? Same typology. Same shadow, if you will. Same picture. And the cup is... So this is a wedding. I have an adorned bride. She's a counterfeit bride. She's a filthy bride, but she's adorned. So this is a wedding. It's a betrothal. And this is the cup of the betrothal. And and so I have this counterfeit contrast. I have what's in the cup that God gives you. Because when you have the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, it's 12 stages long. I try to do it at all the weddings. I need to do it for all the new people. But one stage of that betrothal ceremony is to come in and put a cup in front. The bridegroom... the one who is courting the bride comes and he puts a cup in front of the bride and he asks her to drink from it. If she drinks from it, then she has agreed to be betrothed. He also says to her, my father has many mansions and I go now to prepare a place for you, which is exactly what Christ says in John. He is, and they all knew that. That's almost like singing a a wedding song that everybody knows. They knew that when he said that, that he was in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony doing one of the twelve steps. Putting the cup in front of you, having you drink from the cup is what we do every communion service, which we need to start having. If you have a communion service, when you take the communion wine, you are saying that I will be in the bride of Christ. I accept the marriage proposal. That's what's going on there. Well, she has a cup. The harlot has a cup. And it is also a marriage proposal. And if you go into a betrothed to her, what happens to you? You're doomed. You're condemned. Okay? There you go. We'll be back here very soon, and you can ponder those questions about the scarlet beast and what's going on in this betrothal while we take off. Because where are we really today? John 12. I just want you to remember now, when you start doing this, it is proper to view the beast both as the fourth Gentile empire, all of these heads, these 
United stage, two division stage, world devoured, world government stage, and the ten kingdom stage, of which the Antichrist is which king? The eleventh king, and he does what? Kills three, so he becomes the eighth king. It's proper to view the beast both, both as the fourth Gentile empire as well as personally of the Antichrist himself. In the book of Revelation, it's used alternatively. You'll see one verse that's about the empire. The next verse is about the beast himself. Okay, now we're going to have fun. This is a lot of fun. In fact, this is so much fun that you're going to tell me, go an extra hour today, coach. This is a blast. Forget about the chicken. Four buckets, three buckets of Kentucky fried chicken. By the way, how many buckets are for you? That's right, one bucket. That's right. Because we have that pastor tax. We've got to keep that. And, and we have the pastor's wife tax. Okay, here we are, John 12. This is an incredible passage. Just incredible. Open up your textbooks to John 12, and here we, here we go. Let's pound our way through it. For those of you who were here last Sunday, you may remember that at the end of the sermon, I blew through a list of what I said were obvious questions. So we're going to do some of that again today. Then, six days before the Passover, what's the obvious question? Why six days? Why not ten days? What's six days got to do with anything? It always has something to do. Six days is a very important time mark. Passover, very important time mark. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, who is Jesus? Get your skittle. Who is Jesus? Lord God. That's right. Does he know Lazarus is going to be there? So he's doing this. He's setting this up. This is an important thing that he's doing. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. He wanted Lazarus to be there, and he wanted Lazarus to sit at the table. It was very important to him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now the first recorded words of Judas. So take your time here, boys and girls. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Now you've got to know what Iscariot means, by the way. It tells you he's a Moabite. Judas Iscariot of Simon. Yours might have Simon's son in it. Does yours have Simon's son in it? Well, son is in what? In italics, which means it's not in the text at all. So he is not the son of Simon. But Simon's really important because that means he's identified in the Simeonic prophecy. When I say Simeonic prophecy, I mean Simeon. That is incarcerated by Joseph. I mean, Simeon Peter that sinks in the water and denies Christ and has to be taught how what love him means. I mean, Simeon the prophet that holds up the Christ child and does not perish until he sees the Messiah. I mean, Simeon the Cyrenian who carries the cross beam. All the Simeons in the scripture in the Simeonic prophecy. And now, oh, and I mean this guy. 
I also mean Lazarus, by the way, because he's the brother of Martha and Mary. And whose house does Martha and Mary live in? Do you know? Whose house? Take a guess. Simon's house. There you go. Simon the who? Simon the leper. So they're in the Simeonic prophecy as well. I have two parts of the Simeonic prophecy. Bang, right here. Lazarus, a big key part of that. But what, did you think this was, by the way, a very easy passage, John 12? It naturally follows these guys. So it's not easy. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot of Simon, who would deliver him. Notice how I say that. I don't say betray because you can't betray an omniscient God, can you? He, he is, the word also means deliver. And I think deliver is correct. We'll go to Matthew 26 where it's identified as he is called the deliverer of Christ there, not the betrayer. That's a mistake, I believe, that uh, translators have made and Christians have made for years. How do you betray somebody that is omniscient? Duh. Read your Elisha. Typology. First words of Judas Iscariot, the deliverer. Obvious question is what? Why does God want a deliverer? That's kind of weird. Why was this the first words of Judas Iscariot? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? Let me translate that for you. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for $50,000? Here's wages. Right now you're rich if you make 75000 in this country. All you rich people. So you might make the case it's seventy-five to 100000 but at minimum it's 50000 Why was this fragrance... Fragrant oil not sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. That is a powerful, powerful question from an extraordinarily intelligent being. And it was very effective. It almost completely turned every apostle against Christ. Remember where he said, I lost none? Right here is a battle over the apostles. And that is a very, very clever thing that Judas said. And if you don't see it, don't worry. We will get there. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. And that is extraordinarily mysterious. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. What's that mean? Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came. How many is a great many? A lot. He didn't have to worry about competing with the Super Bowl. What was he doing? Healing. Nobody died around him. Do you understand that? If you're going to die... No, there's no recorded person who ever died in the presence of Christ. I don't know what the, what the circle was that he kept, but nobody died if he was in their presence, in their midst. Word of that got out. So if you're not feeling good, what do you do? You go there. That's what you do. How many people did he heal? The answer is everybody. 
that he came in contact with. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. That's a big deal. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Geniuses that they are. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, what are you? Saved. Everlasting saved. Okay. Things like, here's questions that I blew through last week. Why did Judas have the money box? How does the Simeon Simon type of Israel prophecy fit into all of this? Obviously, Judas has a type of <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Israel issue, but also so does Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Why did Judas hang himself? That doesn't seem to make any sense, but actually it makes perfect sense if you recognize the counterfeit element of all of this. Does that help you? Why did I'm just speaking really fast? Did that help anybody when I said that? Why? What did Judas steal? From whom? Who's he stealing it from? Why does the Antichrist build an image? I asked that last week, Revelation 13, 15 through 16. Why does he put marks on his worshipers? What's the point of that? This forehead mark thing I just asked about. Well, John 12 contains many answers uh, to those, to these, all those I just gave you, and many more because it deals with the mystery of the man of sin. This is the mystery of the Antichrist going off right here, number 8. It also clears up much of Revelation 17. So let's flip it back over here. Cool, huh? Is the other one loose? Nope, it's not. Righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Okay. Now, John 12 fixes this for you as well. Revelation 17, specifically 8. Now, to begin with, always remember that Satan is counterfeiting God's plan. Always remember that. Satan cannot duplicate God's plan. He can't be triune, but he can be triad. He can't do what God does, but he can make a mimic of it. He can ape it. He can counterfeit it. He can construct a fake. That's all he's left to do. That's his plan is to construct a fake. So that's what's happening here. A, a fake is being constructed. Remember Zechariah 11, I have the good shepherd and the wicked shepherd. I have this contrast between the true and the false. So always ask, and they are side by side there, always ask to what true element of God's, of Jesus Christ's redemptive work is the satanic counterfeit related. And if that makes sense to you, let me help you with that. I have an image, I have a mark, I have a bride, I have silver, I have wages, I have a shepherd, I have the sheep, the poor of the flock, I have the field of blood, I have a hanging, I have an abyss, I have a false prophet. Okay, Where do those fit? Begin evaluating the Antichrist elements and match them to their corresponding godly Christ precepts and symbols. If you do that, in other words, you say, I have a mark of a beast, I don't understand it. Do I have a mark of God? I do. I have a bride of the Antichrist. Do I have a bride of the Christ? I do. You can spot those. I have an Antichrist. He's obviously a counterfeit Christ. Right? Find the counter, find, find the real one and then match the counterfeit up to it. 
The Antichrist will, will pretend to fulfill biblical prophecy. The world will worship him as creator God. He will be resurrected from the dead. Do you understand that? He will be resurrected. That, by the way, is also Revelation 17. He is going to be res- resurrected. Why? What does resurrection, why does that have so much power? Look, the Jews are coming to see Lazarus. He's resurrected. They're paying more attention to the guy that's resurrected. Why do they want to see Lazarus? Why don't they want to see the guy that resurrected Lazarus? They want to see Lazarus. Why? He knows something, doesn't he? What's he know? Yeah, he knows. He's a witness. We brought back a witness. He can tell you what. One of the things my dad asked me before he died. What's going to happen? Give me your best. Give me your best shot, kid. I'm going to die here probably in an hour. I need to know what's going to happen. I said, well, two angels are going to come and get you. Um, This is where you're going. Your soul is going to separate from your physical body. Your mind will still be there. I don't know how long you hover. Some people, the Jews say you'll hover for four days. I don't know. I'll say nice things about you for four days. Just in case. (laughs) But I went through all that for him because he wanted to know. Imagine talking to Lazarus. Where'd you go? When you came back together, because you have a a, a polluted, um, I'm sorry, corrupted in stench body. He has to find your soul. He has to repair your body, has to put them all back together again. Then you come hopping out. What was that like? How smart was Lazarus? How much fear did he have of death? None. Why did the, why they want to kill him? Because fear of death is critical to Satan. So anyway, find the compliments, find the corresponding truths with the counterfeits and put them together. So let's go on. Let, now let's tear this to pieces really fast because, okay, that takes some a little kickapoo juice here. We're going to break John 12 into smaller pieces. Next week, I'll put all this on the board. But I'm just going to make a list for you really fast. Six days before the Passover, ask, why that time mark? Why is that time mark in there? Lazarus is at the table. Christ wants, omniscient God wants, the man who is part of the Simeonic prophecy to be at the table when Judas is also at the table and that when Martha is serving and when Mary is throwing oil at him. He wants this. So what's he teaching? What's the lesson? A supper. It's over a supper. Martha served. She's been a type of Israel previously, John 11. She's a Simeon. She's at Simon the leper's house, Matthew 26, 6. Simon the leper owns the house that Martha and Mary live in. It's a Simeonic prophecy. What conclusion do you make? How is it that it's a Simeonic prophecy? What is the difference between the one who is serving and the one who is anointing the Christ with oil. And she pours it all over him, not just his feet. You have to go to Matthew 26. 100 grand worth of oil. Why is she doing that? Resurrected Lazarus sits at the banquet table with Jesus Christ. 
Mary of Simon anoints the feet of Christ with oil for what? For what purpose in John 12? What's she doing with it? What's he say the purpose is? What's he say it is? Yeah, boy, burial. Absolutely. It's burial oil. Does she know that it's burial oil? Yeah, she does. Is he being buried? Soon, she's pouring $100,000 worth of burial oil on a guy sitting at a supper. And the house of Simon the leopard is filled with an aroma. Because that burial oil's got to smell good, right? How come? Because it masks the smell of death, right? Obvious question. When did Simon the leper, Simeon the leper, because it's interchangeable, always think Simeon when you see Simon. When did Simeon the leper get his house back? Because when you're a leper, what happens to you? The Pharisees take your stuff. Now, he had... Obviously, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But generally, the Pharisees come in. When they decide you're a leper, they also decide everybody else is a leper, and they take your property. It's called property taxes. Yes. That's a joke. Thank you. Thank you. In the back row. Appreciate that. When did he get his house back? Because he can't get his house back unless he's what? He's cleansed. So what's the next obvious question? When did he get cleansed? Oh, here's the easy question. Who cleansed him? There's only one possible way to be cleansed of leprosy. The uh, New Testament's clear about that. Only Christ, besides Naam and the, the Syrian with Elisha. So when did exactly and where did Christ heal Simon the leper? It's a very important piece of this puzzle. Judas Iscariot of Simon, of Simeon, more Simeonic, Simeon, can't even say it, more Simeonic typology, prophecy. He attacks right now. Judas Iscariot attacks. Let me, let me go do that really fast. Let's, let's go to Matthew 26 so you see that. I don't want to leave that out. I'll squeeze it in here. Okay, I'm going to go right to 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? There's your word. It's Judas the Deliverer. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, which happens to be the wages of the good shepherd of Zechariah 11, so that the, the so that, so from that time he sought opportunity to deliver him. See that? (coughs) Excuse me. Judas attacks right here. And he asks this incredible question. He says, the fragrant burial oil is not sold. Why don't we sell it? The deliverer of Jesus said, we should take this fragrant burial oil and not sell it. What's he implying? If you don't say, if you, I'm sorry, I said it all backwards. I'm, I confused you. I looked at you. He said, do not use this burial oil. Sell it instead. Don't use it. We should sell it. Right? That's what he says. I'll read it exactly. Why was this fragrant oil not sold? So don't sell it. <laughs> He's saying... Sell it, don't use it for burial. There, I got it out right. What's the implication of that? What's the implication? 
Well, he's saying a bunch of things. Either you don't deserve this anointing oil to Christ. You're not going to need it because there is no burial. There won't be any death. Okay? Or uh, you're not doing something else. You're not putting it to its best possible use, which is what? Giving it to the poor in the form of what? Money. Sell it. Give the poor money. So it's not needed. There won't be any burial. You don't need to be anointed. Or if you don't need to be anointed, then you're not the accepted sacrifice anyway. Right? What accusation is being made against the character of Christ? If you compare 26 of Matthew 6 through 13, you'll see that he calls it a waste. This is a waste. We are wasting this on you. We should give it to the poor. It is a waste to put this on you. We should sell it. And all of the disciples, Matthew 26, 6 through 13, all of the disciples, and I would expect that, by the way, because why? Judas was the most powerful, the most intelligent, and what else was he? The most attractive. He was an extraordinary looking, extraordinary, intelligent, powerful disciple. He clearly is the leader of the disciples. There's no question about that. I'll prove that to you next week. All the disciples follow him. Judas is the most powerful, I expect him, the most attractive, a great speaker. But what is implied by Judas's question with respect to the character of Christ, the omniscience of Christ? If Judas is right, if Judas has a better idea, if, if it's better to use the oil for something else, knowing that Christ came to this house on this day with these people here for this purpose of using this oil on himself with this woman who is a type of Israel, knowing that... Judas says he shouldn't have done it. It's a waste. What's the implication? Judas says, listen, i got a better idea. And every disciple says, oh yeah, Judas got a better idea. Who do you have a better idea than? Omniscient God. Either that is omniscient God or it isn't. That is either the best possible idea or he's not omniscient God. Judas attacks right here. He attacks his character. He's accusing God of unnecessary, wasteful selfishness and also failing to care for the poor of the poor of the Zechariah 11, poor of the flock. And now you begin to see the Zechariah 11 connection. Keep in mind, this is a Zechariah 11 context. Okay, this is the good shepherd and the wicked shepherd in confrontation. That's made obvious by Matthew 27, 6, 14 through 16, where after this event, Judas goes and negotiates the good shepherd's wages. And that's a very important question. Why does Judas do that? Judas accuses Christ here of letting the poor of the flock die. And that's a really important thing. I'm going to skip ahead. I want you to start asking some very mysterious questions. I want you to see that John 12:5 is blasphemy. And Judas knew it. It's right out of Satan's thing. Why was this fragrant oil not sold? That's blasphemy. That is saying that Christ is not God. And Christ is not the 
sacrifice, which means Christ is not sinless, which means that Christ is not perfect, which means that Christ is not God. It's blasphemy. Hope you see that. Okay, I'm going to ask you an obvious question. Why do we even have a money box? Does that make any sense to you at all? What's the purpose of the money box? We got a money box. Why? Do we need a money box? What do we put in the money box? Money. What do we use the money for? We give it to the poor? Why? What did the poor buy with it? You're the poor. What do you buy? Food. Does Christ need to buy food for the poor? We have somebody who can make food out of what? Nothing. Poof. Food. Do they need medical supplies? Health insurance? The poor? How about the people that are... What is the money box for? The disciples, okay, we're going to put all our tithes and offerings for the disciples in the money box, and we're going to go out and we're going to buy what? Food? <clears throat> Food. We're going to buy a boat? Do we need a boat? we got a guy to walk on water here, folks, who can walk through people. This is God. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need insurance, a boat. Does he need weapons? I am. Everybody falls down. What did they need a money box for? That's very important. A money box doesn't seem to make sense. But it does make sense if you understand Zechariah 11. I'm going to lead you to this last thing. Next week we'll have a whole bunch more. You saw me skipping all these pages. Goliath. Very important to this. Goliath. He's killed how? Blow to the head. He's hit by... Effectively, it has to go through an armor plate that's on his head. We know how thick it was. How fast did that rock travel? About... 4,500 feet per second, which makes it the same range as a 6-millimeter rifle, maybe 7-millimeter. He's killed by a blow to to the head. We would predict that. How come? Genesis 3.15. He's decapitated. His skull is buried at Golgotha, also called Golgoliatha, which means the place where Goliath's head is buried. That's why Christ, as you know, was crucified on Golgotha. He wanted to be on top of Goliath's head. David cut it off, took it back, and buried it there. And Christ put his cross right on top of Goliath's skull. Okay? That's very important. All of you know that. Goliath is a what? Who is he? He he is a picture. But even better, he is a Nephilimic mutant. That's what he is who blasphemes the Lord God of Israel and is killed by the shepherd king. There you go. There's your John 12. That's all the information you need. You don't need me anymore. I can take next week off. I won't. I'll be here with the chicken. Okay. Let's rise and be dismissed.